Hello, hello. I'm Andrew Van, and this is the Media Diary Podcast, where I go over the movies, music, TV shows, what have you, that recently caught my attention and I wanted to share my opinions on. On today's episode, I'm going to be sharing everything I've consumed over the past summer and fall, starting with movies, before getting into some of the music I've been listening to, and then some miscellaneous stuff like comics, video games, podcasts. So yeah, let's get into some of the movies that I've watched recently, starting with Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. So, I'm always on the hunt for particularly weird movies, not like the inscrutable stuff like Zardoz or The Holy Mountain, but well-written, thematically consistent movies with a lot of weird hooks and set dressings, like Being John Malkovich or Sorry to Bother You. So, when I saw the trailer for Everything, Everywhere, and found out it was from the same weirdos that did Swiss Army Man and the Turn Down For What music video, I got my hopes up for this to be something chaotic and hopefully less gross than Swiss Army Man. And I basically got everything that I wanted, though this movie is by no means free of some really gross shit. There's a memorable kung fu fight in the film where two characters are fighting with butt plugs visibly lodged in their asses. <sighs> but the film is also deeply emotional and silly in ways that are very charming as well. It centers an Asian American family struggling through a tax audit on their small business, which ends up escalating into a universe-crossing, multi-dimensional struggle against apathy... I guess. This is a deeply weird movie, but again, it is tons of fun and a lot less hard to follow than a lot of summaries might suggest. And also you get to see somebody beat a policeman to death with dildos. Big, floppy dildos. You should see this film. <laughs> Another unexpected slice of cinematic joy was The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, starring Nicholas Motherfucking Cage. I was really expecting this film to be meme nonsense, given that it is the movie where Nick Cage plays himself. But instead, it's another solid entry into the ongoing Nick Cage revival. If you want to see a film where two strangers fall into friendship with one another while in the middle of a convoluted drug war scenario, yeah, this movie is just really good. Pedro Pascal and Nick Cage have so much on-screen chemistry, it's insane. And it has some good twists to it that don't feel overdone either. If you want to watch an action comedy that's outside of the usual MCU formula, go try this out. Next up, we have the most recent George Miller film, 3,000 Years of Longing. This one's maybe not for everyone, given its slow pacing and inherently orientalist lens, but if you can get past those things, and that's up to you if you can or even should, this movie's pretty interesting. The premise is basically some fucking white woman played by Tilda Swinton, finds a djinn 
in a piece of kitsch that she buys on vacation, played by our collective daddy, Idris Elba, who proceeds to tell her his life story, which is sad, traumatic, and ultimately hopeful as he describes the ways that he struggles to catch up with the human race and form bonds with people after being locked away in the bottle for long periods of time. I found it to be a very emotionally affecting film, but again we run into problems of Orientalism. Most of the Jinn's backstory takes place between Arabia and Anatolia, featuring events that range from mythic to somewhat factually based. And while it's nice to see casts that are predominantly not white in a film, this is ultimately George Miller fantasizing about otherness. And while he has worked in various ways to humanize these characters and try to break them out of stereotypes, this is ultimately a movie with a very legendary and fantastical lens. Also, sexual fetishization of very fat women. Like, it's cool to see plus-size actresses, but... They're very objectified here. So yeah, kind of a mixed bag. Then there is the latest Jordan Peele movie, Nope, which I think is a movie that is best to go into with very little knowledge of what it could be. The most I'll say is that the main characters work wrangling animals, specifically horses, for Hollywood, and the theming of the film follows accordingly. There's a lot here about animal psychology and a lot about exploitation for spectacle. When compared to Get Out and Us, I would not categorize Nope as being a straightforward horror movie, which is not to say that it isn't free from tense and horrific moments, of which there are many. This movie, though, does confirm for all time that Jordan Peele is a gigantic weeb. I got to the ending of it and was like, there is no way that this motherfucker didn't get high as hell and watch Evangelion. But this isn't the only Jordan Peele joint that I was able to watch in the last couple of months because his collaboration with Henry Selleck, the legendary director of Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline, James and the Giant Peach, and Monkey Bone, released their long-anticipated collaboration, Wendell and Wild, recently. And I am not shocked that Netflix is under-promoting this, given how anti-corporate, anti-prison, and anti-establishment this film is. Our main character is a young woman who has been orphaned after the death of her parents, who is kicked around the juvenile system until she winds back up in her hometown at a Catholic reform school. She is contacted by two demonic brothers, played by Key and Peele, named Wendell and Wild, who are planning to rebel against their father, the Lord of the Afterlife, by creating a baller amusement park. From there, we pivot to a lot of necromancy and commentary on capitalism being inherently predatory, and you have to get accustomed to characters just 
chugging hair cream. But it's a gorgeous film with a lot to say about a lot of things politically. And the soundtrack absolutely slaps. I knew I was in for a good time the moment that I recognized our main character's dad is wearing a fishbone t-shirt. I mean, we've got TV on the radio, the specials, a band called Death in the mix here. Our main character carries around a vintage boombox with a eyeball painted on the speaker. It's rad as hell. And much more comedic than anything either of these two directors have done in their own films. A welcome reminder that Jordan Peele is not just a good horror writer, but funny as fuck. Now, the last couple of films that I want to talk about here, I'm going to do as kind of a little speed round here, so pay attention. The new Predator movie, Prey, is really good. Please put more Native Americans in movies. I finally watched Bad Boys 2, which is the most hateful movie I've ever seen in my life. Goddamn. I rewatched Zombieland for the first time in many, many years, and it has aged like fucking milk. And Hocus Pocus 2 is really good, really fun, probably the best Disney sequel in a very long time. And with all that out of the way, let's turn our attention to music releases. There's actually quite a number of albums I'm really excited about this year so far, with my favorites at the moment being Orville Peck's Bronco and Denzel Curry's Melt My Eyes. Both of these records are ideal projects from these creators. Orville Peck feels like he's really nailed the perfect combination of indie rock and country that he's been searching for with past releases. I don't usually fuck with country records, but, like, it is just no skips. So good. And Denzel turned in what is essentially a conscious hip-hop record on his part. Sure, there's stuff like Ain't No Way on there that's, like, fucking banger material, but the record starts off and finishes so lush and contemplative. It's gorgeous stuff, and I love that he also released sort of a, like, reworking of most of the album with live instrumentation. He's just so creative and, like, one of my favorite musicians to, like, see what they've got going on at this point, because it's always something special. Pink Shift finally put out their debut album, and it goes hard as fuck. They're an up-and-coming punk band that, to me, sound pretty reminiscent of, like, Sum 41 and The Offspring, but with a Riot girl style vocalist. Their initial EP, Saccharin, made it onto my best of list from last year, so if you like punk music, if you like female-fronted rock bands, give them a listen for sure. On a similar note, Pool Kids put out a new record recently that I think curbs a lot of their noodliest tendencies and is a little bit better on the songwriting and production standpoints than their previous releases. They're another female-fronted band, though, with more of a math rock-inspired old-school emo vibe. And while a lot of the songs run together in my mind because of how stylistically consistent the band are, the lyrics are very on point. This is a devastating 
post-breakup album. On the opposite side of the emotional spectrum, some of the breeziest pop-punk I've heard in a while comes from Never Knows Best new album, Another Summer. There's obviously a lot of Blink-182 worship going on in here, but the incorporation of a lot of glitchy and upbeat electronic elements transports me to a place in time when I was a lot younger, watching anime, listening to J-pop and pop punk and just hanging out. Like, picture in your head if 100 Gex were covering Blink-182's Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. That's kind of the instrumental palette we've got going on here. Uh, let's see here. Other albums, other albums. Uh, Beyonce put out her latest album, Renaissance, and it is like a dance party record. The first thing I really thought as I was getting into the meat of this record was how it reminded me of the avalanches since I left you. And that's because both records are meant to simulate a DJ set, with all the songs working as a continual mix running one into another. And it's been interesting to see Beyonce over the last, like, half a decade or so really taking some creative risks with her career. Now let's talk about some albums I'm a little less enthusiastic about. Pale Waves put out their newest album, Unwanted, which is their follow-up to my favorite album of theirs, Who Am I? The record feels a bit bloated. I don't think the songwriting is as tight this time around. The band get a lot of comparisons to Avril Lavigne, and I understand that, but some moments on this record definitely hit a little closer to that than before. Like, I like the song Jealousy. It's a good single, but oh man, is this like getting into the like cringier part of Avril's sound. Like before, their stuff was more like complicated or my happy ending Avril, and this is teetering a bit close to hey hey you you, I don't like your girlfriend. <laughs> then there is the new Slipknot album, The End So Far. I am a dedicated maggot, so I will probably end up liking this record eventually. My first impression is that this album is messy and not not as radio-friendly as they usually tend to be. I already didn't like the teaser track, The Chapeltown Rag, that they released, and the opening track, Adderall, is strangely classic rock-inspired. Like, I am catching whiffs of Elton John in a Slipknot song. What what the actual fuck. But then there's songs like Yen, Warranty, and Medicine for the Dead that feel more consistent and scratch a lot of the itches that I have when it comes to a Slipknot record. So yeah, I'm currently kind of underwhelmed by the record, especially contrasting it with We Are Not Your Kind, which was really fucking good. I don't know, I'm never gonna truly 100% hate a Slipknot project. I'm just, I'm just that way. And with that, let's move move on to some of the miscellaneous stuff. I've actually been playing video games this year. I'm not much of a gamer overall, but uh, yeah, I've got a couple that I want to talk about here. First up is Bear and Breakfast, uh, a kind of Stardew Valley feeling uh, game about being a landlord. You're a bear, and you and your woodland friends stumble across a abandoned shed, and a inflatable talking shark 
that wants you to refurbish the house and start letting people vacation there Airbnb style. So you have to gather resources to upgrade and furnish these places to try and get good reviews and... The game actually has a pretty bleak outlook on capitalism. Like, the shark dude that's trying to encourage you to open up new locations and constantly pestering you for growth is a thousand percent taking advantage of you and your hard work, as well as the people staying at your place, and the game has no qualms about pointing that out constantly. But I do like the message about reusing things and fixing things up and repurposing, like, garbage. It's cute and well put together. My only qualm is that the controls are a little confusing at first. Like, it took me a while to, like, really internalize how to access certain menus in it. But yeah, fun little resource management game. I've also picked up playing Tunic because of a video essay by Sarah Zideg. It's kind of a merger of old-school 2D Zelda games and, like, Dark Souls. You're a little fox character that starts the game off with no weapons and no controls other than movement, and slowly you get things like a stick to start attacking enemies with. And there's not really a traditional tutorial to any of this. It's one of those journey-inspired games where you're rewarded for exploring and there's not usually a wrong way to go about approaching any particular area. It's also really difficult. I know that that's kind of a statement since I mentioned Dark Souls earlier and I don't want you coming away with the opinion that I think this game is that level of difficult, but it is the sort of game where you have to get good at using your shield, using the dodge mechanics, because you cannot take very many hits here. And because of the references to Legend of Zelda, I find this a lot more approachable than, say, a Dark Souls. Also, the a visual aesthetic is just polar opposite to the grim dark bullshit going on in those games. But yeah, there's a lot to love about Tunic. The level designs are very intuitive, the lore is subtle and compelling, and the mechanics are well thought out. And you play as a little fox guy, what's there not to love? Now, getting away from newer games, I recently bought some N64 cartridges at a anime convention. Those being Kirby the Crystal Shards and Yoshi's Story. These two games cost me over $100, and yes, I know that I paid too much for them. But it made me think of a wonderful video essay by Stephanie Sterling of the Jimquisition, where she talks about, quote-unquote, the one thing millennials did kill which is the resale market for nostalgia products. The two games that I bought are well over 20 years old, and having lived through the time period in which they were released, I remember what these sort of games cost at the time. And so what Captain Sterling was talking about in the video was how millennials have been basically eating each other alive on sites like eBay to get these quote-unquote rare items, but particularly that a lot of people hoard this sort of stuff 
to capitalize on this and that any new people getting into any collectible markets will drastically affect the resale value of everything in there. And it's sad that they cost so much and also a tragedy that Nintendo has a lot of anti-consumer policies going on. Because these are two games that I have played on emulators and have also previously bought on the Wii Store. Because while Nintendo has re-released these games, because the Wii Store closed down and because my Wii died a few years ago, I don't have access to that game. And even playing the game on the Wii required me to use a GameCube controller to play the game, which is a different controller and different feel than playing it with an N64 controller. And while I could get an imitation USB Nintendo controller, I'm sure, to play it on my computer, I've noticed that playing games on my computer also feels just a little bit off. Both Yoshi's Story and The Crystal Shards were games that I played back in the day that I borrowed from either Blockbuster or from local friends, and thus retain a physical memory of how it should feel to play these games, which is ultimately why I paid ridiculous prices to acquire them. Anyway, both of those games are fucking awesome, and I love old games where the controls feel really good, and you can beat the whole game in a couple of hours if you get good, and you don't need to be like a speed-running maniac to like accomplish that. Moving on from video games, I wanted to shout out a couple of podcasts that I've been listening to recently. Over the last decade, there's been a lot of talk about the historical events that don't tend to be covered in U.S. curriculums. And recently, I stumbled upon two podcasts that I think do a good job filling in some of these gaps. Firstly, there's Blowback, which each season covers a different conflict in U.S. foreign policy with a particular eye for the United States' cruelty during these conflicts. Season 1 had them covering the invasion of Iraq, which vindicated a lot of my teenage feelings on the conflict because, oh my god, were we nakedly evil in that whole debacle. Season 2 goes over the history of U.S. intervention in Cuba, which starts long before Castro and goes up to the present day. And and currently they're on season three, which covers the Korean War, which I think I'm safe in saying is the only war in U.S. history that gets glossed over almost as much as the War of 1812. And the second podcast that I've been listening to is Partition, which is about the separation of India and Pakistan into two separate countries at the end of British rule. The host is a young South Asian woman who has been trying to get the older generations of her family to openly talk about their experiences during partition, seeing as it was one of, if not the largest mass migration in human history that featured a lot of genocidal elements to it, seeing as India and Pakistan 
were essentially segregated by religious and ethnic affiliations. It is some pretty bleak stuff at times. Like, treat this like you would a history podcast on the Holocaust. I recommend both of these podcasts very highly. Uh, Blowback in particular has really high production value. Besides getting lots of interviews in, in both of these, Blowback also has a lot of original music created for the program. And I guess I would like to lastly finish out this podcast talking a little bit about Scott Pilgrim, because I recently, over the last couple of months, finished buying the re-released full-color hardcover editions of the comics. I had seen some discourse on Twitter.com about to what extent is Scott Pilgrim a problematic piece of literature. So I decided that this was a good excuse to go and reread the whole damn thing, because I did remember the comics doing a better job addressing toxic relationships than the movie. And to my delight, this was correct, and I had a very good time rereading this, but was kind of aghast at to what extent there was material in the comics that was not in the movie that really fleshed out particularly the female characters, but more importantly, making Scott's arc feel complete. Like, the whole comeuppance for Scott cheating on Knives with Ramona is given a lot more time to breathe, particularly in the fifth book. There's a whole-ass character I fucking forgot about named Lisa, who complicates Scott's arc in a couple of interesting ways. And the twins, who get barely any screen time in the movie, are vital to Scott coming to terms with, like, how shitty he was when cheating on Knives with Ramona. Also, Ramona has a fucking character arc. She doesn't go disappear on Scott to go chill with Gideon. She fucks off to subspace because she has to get over the fact that she's so emotionally distant because of how many terrible people she's let into her life who have hurt her. Like, I joked on my TikTok review of the series that she's not a manic pixie dream girl she's a defensive sub which i think is a very meaningful difference and comes out a lot clearer in the comics because it is not present in the movie also there's like any consequences for scott dating slash grooming knives like her dad legitimately tries to kill him and knives has her own arc of like slowly getting over scott and taking him off of the pedestal so yeah i still really like the comic even though the movie is a lot easier to walk away from with the wrong messages and with that i'm gonna wrap up this episode if you liked what you heard here you can follow us on soundcloud spotify or iTunes. We'll have links in the descriptions for those, and as always, thanks for listening to my cruddy opinions.